Hello and welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. In part two of my conversation with Andy Curry, Andy and I finish up discussing his take on editing Green Arrow. Also, we discuss how he learned to navigate the politics of the DC offices and the tastes of his bosses. Finally, we talk about the early days of the Black Label imprint and its objectives and how they were revised as the imprint moved forward. In addendum two, Andy talks about the creative folks a reader never really hears about and the responsibilities of an editor. Enjoy. Creatively, as a DC editor, my, my first sort of process is to think, once because you, you're assigned characters for the most part, at least back then you were. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't necessarily invent things from whole cloth. Maybe you do now. I do think editors at DC now have more uh, creative initiative than they were ever allowed to have in the last, you know, certainly 17, 20 years or so. And I think that you see that in line. But for me, I would be given a book like Green Arrow, for example, which is a character I didn't have a lot of affection for. I didn't dislike Green Arrow. I just, it was just not one of those characters I ever really got into. And you, you get into, you, you get given this, this task and you think like, this character was created today what would you push forward? What would come to the surface of the character, of the take, you know? And, and, and through that process, through that sort of critical thinking process and talking with the writer, I was, I was very lucky because many times editors at the time I was there don't get to choose all the creators on their books. And I inherited uh, the writer Benjamin Percy from a decision somebody else made, and I was very lucky because he's so good, and we got along so well, and we were we worked together so well, and I became a fan of Green Arrow through the process of talking with Ben about the character and what it, we thought should be expressed about him, and and uh, that was a really fun process that Rebirth enabled us to have, you know, because because sort of everything was on the table. We could look at things that were not you were not able to do, like. The Black Canary relationship, and that process repeated itself many times throughout Rebirth, like on with Suicide Squad or, and Aquaman. And was Ben interested in bringing back Black Canary? I mean, that's I, I used to read Green Green Arrow at times. I didn't even know they were. I mean, I, I guess I dropped off. Uh, did not even know that Black Canary and Green Arrow, because that that couple is the. That's what I know them. You know, when I read, that's my Green Arrow. That there yeah, was always it a, was a. It was a creative a unique... decision to to not have them together, uh, or <laughs> even have met through the New Fifty Two. Yeah, and you know, it was just a creative decision I didn't really like, and I was fortunate to be empowered to reverse it. And Ben wanted and that too. That Ben was very important to Ben, and if yeah. you, you know, and that was the feedback we got from the readers. The the book was was very successful. Um, and I still weekly get, get, uh, you know, missives from people saying they loved it so much, or they're just discovering it now in the trades or whatever. And, you know, the relationship is so core to the character. And, you know, I, I have a pithy sort of one-liner about Green Arrow, which is, I think, Black Canary works without Green Arrow, but Green Arrow doesn't work without Black Canary. <laughs> and you know, these are these are the sort of things that you you know think about when you're when you're trying to 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 create like a new successful iteration of a of a legacy character. You know, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> so Rebirth was really a great opportunity to 
to reintegrate and restore a lot of things that had been, uh, you know, lost just because of, you know, creative decisions. And sometimes, you know, that's really all it is. Like, you know, the, when you're working with characters like these, everything is, is either a good idea or a bad idea. And, you know, it's, it's borne out when you release it and you see what happens, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, when you came on to, onto DC, did you, I mean, there must've been a, a whole culture that you had to learn, even though you had these conversations, you know, these long conversations with Brian and, uh, Bob, uh, just before, you know, for them to decide to bring you on and they felt that you were a fit. But when you stepped into the offices and you were handed these characters, was there a moment of going, you know, what do I do now? Or was it the transition made very, did anybody step in and help make that transition to being a comic book editor and shepherding these characters like, Suicide Squad and Green Arrow, especially at that time when their, you know, rebirth is kicking in. So there's a ramp up and expectations of, of, um, of, you know, these launches and eyeballs on these new launches and these new takes and stuff. Well, I was fortunate with the timing again, because the company was in the, was in the middle of moving. Um, So my first days in the LA office, it was really just me and Alex Antone and oh, really? a few a few other people because <laughs> the New York people hadn't arrived yet. So there was a big culture shift right around the time I came in. So um, I was fortunate in that I didn't really have to conform to some sort of existing way of doing things because we were all sort of reinventing it together the L.A. era was beginning. You know? did, you, did you have to show around all these uh, hardcore New Yorkers that I'll never leave the East Coast? You know, a little Like what L.A. is all about? You know? a, a little bit. Like people in New York were asking me about, you know, where should I live? Where, <laughs> what, tell me about the neighborhoods, you know, things like that. But mm-hmm. uh, to answer your question in terms of like helping me, you know, uh, jump in feet first, the person who was most invaluable to me was my then assistant editor, Ariana Tuturo. She had been and been at DC first as an intern and then as an assistant editor in Brian's group and helped me with all the sort of, like, uh, internal processes, you know, things that you can only learn once you're working there, like the, the way the paperwork works, the way, you know, this is what this weekly meeting is for, this is what you have to have prepared for this meeting and things like that. In terms of, you know, and I learned a lot from Brian, too, in terms of, like, you know, do this so you don't get in trouble, you know, like <laughs> thing, things like that. Uh, I was also very excited and naive, really, about what I thought an editor could do at that time uh, with respect to, like, logo design or hiring people or mm-hmm. coloring the books and uh you know, it's funny. I look back at some of the creative decisions I made. It's funny. Knowing what I know now, I might not have made them. Uh, not as creative decisions on their own merit, but just in terms of, like, you know, how much uh, grief you might get for them. You know, mm-hmm. because they might not be somebody's tastes or something like that. Because, if you know, sometimes you'll do something and you'll hear about it from somebody above you. And I look back and I think, oh, yeah, of course he wasn't going to like that. Of course they weren't going to like that. Why'd I do that? Well, I didn't know. 
it was it was a fun experience for that. So that when you know when Rebirth happened, I was very practiced by that point, and I I jumped in to those to those books, and I those those I think those were very strong by that point. But Ariana was super important to give, giving me sort of the lay of the land and, and helping me see the boundaries, you know, in terms of what you could do and in, in that moment, you know, and not get you know, in too much trouble for it. Basically. <laughs> that was one thing like Bob Shrek and <clears throat> uh, an old interview of mine was talking about how he would make pitches and bring up ideas to Karen Berger when he was at Vertigo. And also Will Dennis sort of echoed the same thing that these these two guys and other editors are probably, you know, they knew their boss, you know, they had experience before. So they figured out a strategy of how to sort of convince them to maybe do something that if they had just rushed through the door right away or whatever, a different approach would have gotten them a no. But they figured out approaches that would eventually get them a yes. Um and stuff because they just had the opportunity of years of experience of watching. And is that sort of what you're talking about that you sort of had to, you know, learn how to, you know, the, just learn when's a good time, you know, how to sort of turn up the heat a little bit or when to step back and maybe, you know, sit tight on an idea or, or something before pitching it or yeah in in every corporate job i think Mm -hmm. in any industry you really have to learn how and when to to present an idea and fight for an idea yeah um and i didn't know that at first i made a lot of mistakes at first and um and i think that's good too i think I think that's how you. I think that's the best way to learn. At least the best way for me to learn. Were those like, those mistakes that you made? Did they end up killing the project in total, or were you able to maybe bring them back again after you sort of figured out? No, how to nothing present? was nothing was ever killed. It's just okay. You know, like I, it's hard to to give you a specific example without sort of casting aspersions on anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm proud of all the work. But there's certain things I did early on that I might not do now, yep. you know, because now I have more experience. I'm better now. I can see some. I can see in retrospect that maybe something I thought was a good idea at the time isn't a good idea now, or because I knew now in retrospect I might know. Like of course, you know, the bosses were never going to like that. I should have. I I might have picked a different moment for that kind of thing, you know. Um, and I'm making it sound like there's. That the job is is about some sort of like you know um, I don't know game of chess and it's not you know it's a fun creative job and and sometimes you get your way and sometimes you don't and sometimes you're wrong you know it's uh, it's not as it's not as dire as all that you know as as a, <laughs> as a project failing or whatever I mean that's if you're asking about like a pitch like like a take you come up with for a DC character and you want to do it. And you get told no, that could be a bummer, but it, that's just the job, you know. It's someone else's job to say yes or say no, and that's just how it is. You know, sometimes it can be frustrating because you because you you might believe in your heart you're absolutely right, and maybe you you know you're right, but it's still you know that's just the way it is, you know. Well, I mean, the passion you want. I mean, a creator wants 
their editor or producer in film to be as passionate as they are. They mean, because that's what carries, you know, something into fruition, basically. You're, a pitch is something out of thin air. So if you're able, if that pitch is able to garner the passion, and, and sometimes the passion, you can get that pitch over the finish line with your bosses because they they see how much you believe in it, too. I mean, it, do you, I mean, what do you think? Is that something you looked at or approached, you know, and present in pitching ideas of you wouldn't go up to a bar, you know, up to up the ladder unless you really, really felt that this uh, pitch um, would improve the overall line that had a was a fit for the family. Hmm. I'm, I'm focusing on what you said about passion. Yeah, I think I think you know with your like if I if I felt passionate about something, I felt I definitely felt very empowered to to make a case to Brian Cunningham or to my boss to Mark Doyle, who was my boss later. You know about things like that. But ultimately, like, the company is going to do what it thinks is best for the company. Like, is this is this going to be successful? Is this in line with what we want to do? So your passion, you know, I, I never felt uh, restricted in expressing myself to the bosses, but sometimes it doesn't necessarily matter. It's just, do they agree or not that this is the kind of project we should do? Now, there are many things I, I got to do because I was able to, you know, I guess I was persuasive where they agreed. Like a great example of that is um, the book Harleen by Stepien Sajic, which was a black label miniseries about Harley Quinn by a guy who had never written anything for DC before. He'd been doing his own indie comics for a long time. And um, if you're not familiar, he was doing an indie book called Sunstone, which was a uh, lesbian BDSM uh, kind of romantic comedy. <laughs> I just thought it was such a great comic and the relationships were so vivid and funny mm-hmm. and, and of course sexy. And I knew he had an interest in Harley Quinn and we developed, you know, a pitch together. And, you know, I remember hearing from somebody above me, them telling me, you know, this is not the sort of thing I think is my cup of tea, but I can see how much you like it. And I can see that people would like it and I will support you in pushing this. That was Mark Doyle who said that. Mm-hmm. And that was very helpful. And eventually, you know, cause at the time we were still trying to figure out the place for it. And I really wanted it to be a black label book in the, in the sort of oversized format and prestige format. And eventually I was, you know, I felt empowered to go to Dan DiDio directly and say, I really want to do this book. Will you take a look at these sample pages and just give me the green light or or the red light right now. And he said, I think this looks great. Let's go do it. I would say this about Dan DiDio has a reputation for being mercurial and and uh, that's probably earned. But I think what I really respected about Dan is he was approachable in that way and he would listen to you. He'd hear you out if you did believe in something. So, uh, not now again. Passion is not necessarily a deciding factor, but he would uh, he would recognize it, and mm-hmm. he would acknowledge and he would acknowledge it. And then that was a case where I think he and I were just in agreement. Like this looks like a like a hit, and it was. And I appreciated that about him. We didn't always agree, but that's just you know that's that's life. You know your boss isn't always going to see things your way, and you're not always going to be right. 
And and that was when Black Label was just beginning to, I think, just beginning, right? It was just... That was an early Black Label. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't sort of solidified the way it has now and actually become, you know, oh, wow, this is really a success. You know, when I heard the first pitch about Black Label, I'm like, oh, um, yeah, I can come back to D.C. and I don't have to spend months reading comics and I can, you know, this stuff is a little more, has a little more edge to it. And the, the, the takes are... Uh, like oh wow I can this take is great this take looks great and the quality is just amazing uh, um, overall and the whole label it just seems like everybody's game is you know upped a bit when they're on on that uh, that imprint there were a lot of conversations about what that was and wasn't mm-hmm. and for for whatever reason I'm not sure it became it became sort of locked in people's imaginations that that the line would be a mature reader's line with DC characters. And that was never in my, you know, and I was part of, you know, inventing it. Mm-hmm. It's, that was never like a thing, you know, it was, some of them would be mature, but mostly they were going to be self-contained and prestige. If you like something like Darwin cooks, the new frontier, had it been created in that window of time would have been a black label book. And it's a hardly a mature reader's book. You know what I mean? So, uh, but the themes and what he's dealing with, the complexity of that, there's a complexity in it that you don't sometimes get on like monthly series. I mean, sure. You can make that argument. Uh, there but, was, I think, I think, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I'm not, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, but uh, what I mean is it's not, you know, particularly violent yeah. or sexual or anything like that. Now the, some, some of them were, but it wasn't, you know, the, the, the blanket sort of, uh, you know, mission statement there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is why also, and also like one of the things we talked about was, is black label just for the Frank Millers of the world or the, 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 the Raphael grandpas of the world or the, the, um, <clears throat> the, the Brian Azarellas and Lee Bermejos of the world, or is it can be for somebody like, like Sejic who is, you know, just a really good and someone we think is fantastic and w- would really fit in this format. You know, like those are the kinds of kinds of conversations you have when you're, developing an initiative like that. And it ended up being sort of a hybrid. It's just, it was what we thought, you know, deserved to be presented in this way. It seemed like something very elevated and something, you know, uh, creator driven and holistic, like a, like a, like a vision, you know, beginning, middle and end. And which is not to say there were, I don't know if there have been, but, I know when I was there, we talked about, you know, certain things could be series of black label graphic novels, basically, like a Harleen sequel, for example, you know, so that was, you know, that was a really exciting time. And and I really loved working on all the black label books I worked on. In fact, there are still some that I left unfinished that are still going to come out. Oh, nice. Even years after I've left the company. because. <laughs> Because there's a long runway for some of those because you're working with people who need a lot of time to do some very intricate labor intensive work oh it's and it's all on the page i mean the, i I haven't you know what mm-hmm. I've 
gone through, but like uh, the Greg Smallwood um, Human Target. Mm. I can't wait to get the hardcover version of that. I'm like, wait, I'm waiting for this one. I mean, all this stuff, even, you know, you the Wonder Woman, Dead Earth. I mean, everything is, it's right there. It's all on the page. It just seems like on these on these black labels was it labor of love for these creators too of being able to have play in this universe but also in their vision yeah to really let loose with their vision on 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 mm-hmm. on these series mm-hmm. um you mentioned wonder woman dead earth that was that was a case of uh i felt very empowered to to show this guy's art daniel warren johnson's art to jim lee mm-hmm. and say this guy has never done like a big Marvel book. He's never done anything for DC. He's just done these crazy image books. He does these crazy commissions. And I just think he's fantastic. And I would love to do a black label book with him, even though he's not like a quote unquote big name yet. And Jim said, I agree. This, this guy looks amazing. See what you could develop together. And we came up with, with what I'm a dead earth. I mean, he came up with it. He came in with this idea, you know, we batted around a little bit. And then we just sent him off to do it. And uh, that, that book came together very quickly, was almost fully formed in his imagination when he pitched it. Sometimes things don't need years and years to, to percolate. Sometimes, you know, doing them very quickly can be, can be advantageous because I think you see that on the page of that book. It just, it just seems so alive and fresh. And because it, he was like laying the tracks as the train was moving on that one. We knew where it was going to end. We knew the story and everything like that, but we, we were very aggressive with the scheduling on that one, and he and he rose to the occasion. But, yeah, you tell creators, like, look, you're not restricted by canon exactly. Like, we we did, we did at least at the, when I was there, we imposed this sort of notion that the version of the character you're using has to be sort of recognizably that character in sort of a classic way. Like, the Wonder Woman character in Wonder Woman Dead Earth, even though she's in a completely new environment and scenario, yeah. it's still recognizably Wonder Woman. <laughs> in The Dark Knight Returns, it's still Batman. He's just older, you know? It's not like a an Elseworlds where, you know, Superman is like Robin Hood or whatever the, <laughs> the tw- twist might be. That would be Green you know? Arrow. <laughs> <I know. laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's... These are still basically who they are, but because the idea also was like a book market push. You know, you want people in the bookstores and on Amazon to be able to like confidently buy a story about Wonder Woman or Batman and 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 uh, have some sort of background knowledge of them in the way that most people who consume pop culture do and not feel adrift. And you're not saying that none of that happened. <coughs> you know, you're not saying that none of this continuity and all this background information you might have picked up didn't happen, but here's a character that you're very familiar with that all that stuff did happen to in a different story, in a different setting, you know, different challenges that might reveal something that hasn't been really developed or, you know, really revealed before or an aspect of character that hasn't really been challenged you can, as a reader, like for me, I can go into a black label and I have, you know, a lifetime of history with these characters and it, it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm being, you know, everything's being thrown out the window. You know, I can, you know, I can take all that baggage with me and have a great time. Well, that was certainly a goal uh, mm-hmm. when I was there with Mark Doyle to, to make sure that 
it did feel like that. You know, it is something you recognize, but could also tell a story that maybe isn't restricted by the the confines of a shared universe book where things can't really end. Things can't really be broken because these stories have to keep going and going. Harleen's a good example of what you were just saying. Like an angle, the angle that was different about Harleen was, I don't think we really saw a story before that, that was the why of Harley. You know, we, we know what happened to Harley, but we didn't know why mm-hmm. this woman fell in love with the Joker. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? And this is the story of how that actually happened. And it's very tragic and romantic. And uh, and it's something you can't really do in the main line because Harley and the Joker are split up in the main line. And they have been for a very long time. And that character, that version of Harley is off and running and has been very successfully for a long time. So this gave, gave us a, a way to tell a story that doesn't interfere with that, but is also fills in a gap in a really strong, dramatic way. And uh, <clears throat> the book was very successful. Mm-hmm. So that was that was you know a really rewarding experience for sure. All the black label experiences have been super rewarding for sure. As were Rebirth. Like it was it was that was a great you know for me personally anyway. That was just a great run of projects. And here's the second and final addendum where Andy talks about some unsung heroes at DC Comics. Besides Mike Carlin and Mark Ciarello, there were just so many, at the time I got there, just a really long-tenured comic book professionals in this, like, you know, the sales department, collected editions, design, um, who had been in and out of DC Comics for, for decades that were just um, so helpful to me in giving me advice, giving me feedback on my ideas. Um, a great example is Kenny Lopez, who's the head of covers and logos. You know, I, I came in not really knowing that editors at the at that time anyway don't really get involved in logos. I, I just assumed they did. So I came in with a lot of ideas. And this is one of those things I was mentioning, like things I know now that I probably wouldn't do, but when you come in new and naive and of course your bosses aren't even in the state, you can just kind of, you know, go for it. And, uh, Kenny and I, you know, did many logos together. Um, and, and I just learned so much from him and, uh, another great DC veteran was Amy Metcalf. Who's a, who's a great designer and art director. She, she did, um, so many, so many things at the company, like back in the nineties through now, now she does collected editions and, but she used to do house ads and and logos. And I loved walking over into the design team area that was, you know, Mark Chiarello's area and also collected editions. He was in charge of at the time and just talking and learning. And I, I just felt this is such a great job because you can just walk around the building and find people who are just amazing at what they do and collaborate with them. And, um, you know, I was sort of surprised to learn, um, at the, at the start, that this was not something that people did that often. There was some, you know, in like, like in a lot of corporations, there was, there was a lot of sort of, you know, separation of church and state between departments. And I don't like that. And I made it my business to try to make, you know, working relationships and friendships with anybody who I respected and 
wanted to work with and I'm just really so glad like every like there's so many great people at DC it's I that that that, re, that are not really visible to the readers like one person I, I can think of is Allison Rudolph who's a proofreader who I worked with quite a lot like a lot of people might think editors do the copy editing but I mean we do that as a matter of course but really everything ultimately goes through uh Allison and Brett and Allison was someone I worked with particularly often and just you know she comes from prose she was a she was a book editor like with you know real books and just somebody who who, who gives incredible feedback incredible advice and, and works incredibly hard there's so many people in the production you know department people who who make sure the books get manufactured properly and who source you know the paper especially these days when there's such a shortage like there's so many super talented hardworking people there and I loved working like in the comic book factory like it was fantastic I haven't even mentioned all the fantastic editors there you know like I was really lucky you know um to to collaborate with some fantastic people most of them much younger than me who I learned a lot from and who you know tolerated a lot of my I guess um eccentricities and uh and they're really good friends now like i haven't been at the company since late 2020 and i still talk to my old colleagues literally every day like i was i you know my uh, my friend and, and former colleague chris conroy is someone who's been working at dc for almost 20 years in, in different roles and uh, he he confirmed for me that like the group the la group of that sort of that big chunk of time you know between the LA move and the pandemic was just a really strong group of people. I see, you know, the work they're doing now and I'm just, you know, I have a lot of FOMO about it, but it's, it's great. Like I think under the leadership of Marie Javins, the current editor in chief, the editors have really been empowered to, to drive the line in a, in a really modern way that I think, nails that balance I mentioned before, which is you want to you wanna present the characters and, and the stories and the concepts in a really, I think, thoroughly modern way, but that also feels familiar to the core of, of the character or the concept and what people love about it. You know, like that's, at least as far as I'm concerned, that's always the real trick. And I, when I look at the work I did at DC, I think for the most part, that's what I did and always tried to do which was you know imagine what what would for example suicide squad you know the suicide squad run that i worked on with rob williams and jim lee and um john ramita and you know uh, jason fabach and tony daniel and yvonne Rees and and so many great because we had so many cool backups like that was just like a killer amazing star-studded book to work on and i just felt like this is what suicide squad should be like in this moment you know as opposed to trying to replicate the 80s suicide squad or reinvent it completely or something like that you know like you really want to find that sweet spot between old and new and i think what the current group of editors are doing and the current line reflects that pretty flawlessly i th i mean i don't i can't claim to have read everything but when i when i just look at the line the range of things i'm just incredibly impressed <laughs> <laughs>